Welcome back to another mini soda of In the Aisle. As always, I am your host, Christina, and I am particularly excited today because you get to hear the second half of the conversation I got to have with Hannah in terms of her own political experiences, Black History Month, and so on and so forth. I, before that, will be going into, of course, the analysis that I pushed to this mini-sode about the impeachment and the stimulus checks. And as we now know, more even more news has come up with the impeachment in terms of how the votes fell, which I will address as well. All right, so I'm going to jump right into the analysis, starting, of course, with the impeachment trial. Let's start with the arguments for both sides. So when you're talking about like the impeachment managers, basically the ones against Trump, they overall, again, had a more compelling case because they had more evidence and they were also way more strategic than Trump's legal team. For example, as I said, they showed clips and footage in the chamber of what happened in the Capitol building when the riot happened. So not only are you asking each of those senators, Democrat and Republican, to relive that day, something like that, I've already seen this footage on the internet, it's brand new. So they basically are sort of have to watch. It showed them, even in some cases themselves, and how they reacted that day and what happened. So it was very clear and very raw footage that they watched that day. And that was very smart for these um, impeachment managers to do because, again, like they can't escape it. They have to sit there and watch it and it forces them to really take a moment to reflect on like what it was like that day as a reminder and how Trump had a hand in that with the rally he had before leading up to the people storming the Capitol. So that in that case, again, very smart for the impeachment managers to do. And I think some of the Republicans are at this point are starting to learn that they they can't not write off the president as didn't mean to incite the riot like what his uh, legal team is saying. They're realizing that they want to vote to acquit the president. They need to look and do something else. So, for example, you have Senator Lindsey Graham, who, um, for those of you who don't know, he's a Republican senator from South Carolina, and he's one of Trump's biggest supporters. Not so much now after what happened, but he was very much so in the time of when the riot happened. He is choosing, and some Republicans are choosing, to put more blame on the Capitol Police and saying that they should have done more that day to defend them instead of letting the rioters come in, which to me is a complete cop-out because a lot of the Capitol Police had to wait until they got orders from the president in order to protect the Capitol. And as we know, that didn't happen, and Mike Pence had to technically step in in order to give those orders at that point. So it's it's interesting to me that like they're sort of dancing around the president in this whole case in terms of that. So now let's move on to, of course... The legal team's argument, which, man, they really, I'm sorry, but they just shot themselves in the foot this week. Like, what I was talking about with retroactive impeachments, basically, again, stating that if we allow Trump to be impeached now, who's to, who's to stop impeachment of anybody who's formerly been in office? So, like, for example, they could argue that, like, oh, President Bush, even though he was in office 20 years ago, could be impeached. And that is not this case. Like, the the difference here is, since even though Trump isn't in office now, he was in office when the impeachment started. So he, there was it was still constitutional at that point. 
And to me, it really just felt like, like, you know, when you take an exam and you have an essay question and you know literally nothing about the topic or you know only a little bit of how to answer it. So you just put down literally everything that you can think of and hope that something in there is true or correct enough for where you can get some points. That's exactly what happened here. Like watching this, I was like, this literally feels like what my me when I took exams in school, like in college. When I didn't know the answer to something, I would just throw down everything I knew and be like, well, something in here has to be true. I have to get points for something. And that's exactly what happened here. Comparing an impeachment of President Trump now to trying to impeach somebody who has already been out of office, like, for example, President Bush or President Clinton or literally anyone else, it's like trying to compare apples to iguanas. Like, there's no comparison because they're not the same thing. So... I think that really hurt their argument this week because I think everyone could kind of tell that they were kind of grasping at straws because there are other arguments that Trump didn't mean to incite the riot and that he's no longer in office, like aren't really strong on their own. So in my opinion, it really hurt them. In looking at that extra Republican who sided with the Democrats and that vote for constitutionality, I don't think that we can count on them or any of those six with the vote for impeachment, how that's going to fall. I think that's still very much up in the air, though for those of you who really want to see the president be convicted, this is a little bit more promising that an extra Republican sided with them, though again, it is probably unlikely that we're going to see them convict him in. So by now you can probably tell that that last segment or clip, I should say, came from when I had it in the first episode, then decided to move the analysis to the entire thing because at that time, didn't have the full information of how the impeachment was going to end up. But as we now know, Trump has been acquitted. People did vote to convict Trump. Wasn't enough. They needed 67 in order for that to happen. So Trump was acquitted. Now, I don't even, I mean, I we all knew this was coming, right? We We saw this and I've been saying it since almost my first episode that was so likely that he was not going to get convicted, but just, it was almost somehow more frustrating seeing how it played out because you had all of those Republicans who they even admitted that they saw a connection between Trump and that riot and then still voted to acquit him. For example, Mitch McConnell, like for those of you who didn't see this, I'm going to try to put this in the quickest way that I can. This man, as well as many other Republicans, voted to acquit Trump. He thought it was a good idea after the fact to get up in front of the Senate and say, yeah, you know, now he's acquitted. I can say like, hey, we, I see connection between Trump and the riot. Like that made me more angry than if he didn't say anything at all, because it's like you, you're now confirming that you were just ignoring the arguments on the table and that you are just going to acquit him for whatever reason you have. Now, for some Republicans, acquitting was based solely because he's no longer president and impeachment doesn't make sense. Other Republicans loved Trump and wanted to see him be free and not have to worry about any legal repercussions of what happened. And then I would say majority of the Republicans, though, were cowards. And I hesitate saying that because the whole premise of this podcast is I don't want to call anyone out per se. I want more like calling in so that 
it's a safe space where we can hear each other's sides of the argument. But I also made a promise to you in my first episode where I said that nobody, I don't care what party you're in, is seen as is safe in my mind if they do something wrong, like what many of these Republicans did in the Senate. They're cowards. They they were cowards, and they they know it too. That that's the thing. That's the one piece of solace that I've gotten from this whole thing is that they absolutely know that they're cowards. So I know that's a, come came in a little hot. I know it's a little bit more aggressive than the style and vibe that I usually go for, but it's true. And a lot of them, it really, in my opinion, just comes down to are either afraid of Trump's power still, which, I mean, Lord knows how much power he still actually has over them. I don't think we'll ever truly know that. And secondly, I think they're really scared of their constituents, the people who love Trump and are the ones responsible for voting them into office. They don't want to ruffle those feathers and they're they're afraid that they're not going to get reelected if if they vote against what their their constituents want instead of voting with their morals and conscience. So I think in terms of this, there is so much more to analyze from the two days that they were on trial and talking about like, of course, Trump's legal team and with the impeachment managers. Since this did happen literally the day before I'm dropping this, I'm going to see how next week pans out to see if there's more news about the impeachment and what is in the cards for President Trump in the future. And then I'm going to go into detailed analysis of all of that. But for now, I'm going to leave it at this because I could literally go on a spiral and we all don't want that. You don't want to hear that. And I also want to give myself time to to come at this in a very mature, enlightened way as opposed to being in my feels, which you can probably tell that I am right now. So that is where we are with the impeachment. The one thing I will end with, though, is that this, I don't think, is the end for Trump. Like I said, he can still be put on a criminal trial for what he's done. And we got word this week that the Secretary of State in Georgia is starting to investigate Trump for the call that he made while the Georgia count was still happening before the election was called and trying to convince them to to give him Georgia, basically. So this is far from over for Trump. And I I still think that justice can be served in his case. It's just now going to be the very, very final thing I will say about this is that I've come to the conclusion that, I mean, we all know what happened. We don't need a hundred people in a room to tell us what happened that day because we have eyes. We witnessed that for ourselves. And for those of you who might be thinking, well, now he's acquitted, that means that he did nothing wrong. Remember this. Bill Clinton was acquitted in the 90s for his transgressions with Monica Lewinsky. Doesn't mean he didn't get with Monica Lewinsky. We all know that he did. It's just a matter of the Senate at the time chose to acquit him, which is what we saw here. So just a little food for thought. Keep that in your mind. And like I said, this definitely is not the end for Trump and the trials that will be coming up with him. Okay, so let's now do a quick analysis again of the stimulus check, which like the impeachment, I think I've gone, there's only maybe one episode where it hasn't been mentioned. So again, not going to go into everything I've talked about before, just new details that have emerged that we need to analyze for this week, because I guarantee you that this stimulus check, this next one potentially could impact you. The first thing to note here is like what I was saying about Joe Manchin, who again, 
is our senator from West Virginia, who is a Democrat, who is now expressing concerns over the bill about basically how much money is being given out and who qualifies. So under what I was talking about previously with the budget reconciliation, remember, that allows the Senate to pass this aid without any Republicans voting because you just need a simple majority. Since you have somebody like Senator Manchin, who is a Democrat, and is questioning this bill, this could stop this aid from being passed literally by one vote if he's not in favor of it. So that is the first thing we need to recognize, that not all Democrats are fan of how big this aid package is. A lot of them are fis- more fiscally conservative, so they're not crazy about the $1.9 trillion like many Republicans are. The second thing that is really important to know here, that there is the potential for dependents making under, I believe, $75,000 to get the stimulus. So, for example, anybody, any of you who are living at home with your parents and, like, you just graduated college or something like that, like, you could potentially get the $1,400 under this new aid. I would not put your money on it only because I have seen conflicting information in regards to that in my own research. I've seen sites that have told me that, yes, dependents are eligible for the $1,400, and I've also seen sites telling me that no, it has to be it's be like an independent or like in a single household in order to receive that 1400 So I wouldn't count on that yet. Just something I wanted to put out there because this could potentially impact you and you could be receiving $1,400, which I'm, I'm rooting for. I hope you are rooting for for yourself, especially for those of you like me who have loans. That money would help a lot in, in terms of that. Again, this allows, it could allow young people to get the stimulus check, which was never really an option before. The last thing here that we need to talk about, though, is the fact that this is no longer a bipartisan effort. And this is something I'm actually extremely disappointed in the Democrats about because from the get-go, Biden has, and, and Kamala, have basically been tr- like harping on unity and working together for a better future. And they're not doing that right now. I understand if the $1.9 trillion was something that they even, they worked themselves down on in order to get Republican support, but they, that is not the case here. It's really unfortunate that they were not able to work with the Republicans on this only because this sets the tone now for the rest of the four years. I mean, granted, not, not specifically this case will determine whether or not Democrats and Republicans will work together, but... If they were able to work together on this now, it would, again, like set the tone and create a bridge between the two parties, especially with Biden, and potentially help for more bipartisan efforts to occur down the line, especially with things involving money. So I'm a little disappointed that the Democrats are just going to push this through. That being said, going to be total hypocrite right now. I think that there needs to be aid soon with the pandemics can get behind that and I can see where they're coming from and understand that. But I really don't think that's the case here. I think there's a lot of Democrats, like even Nancy Pelosi, who kind of want to stick it to the Republicans right now and saying, haha, we have the majority in the House and the Senate and we have a our party in the White House. So we're going to do what we want after you've done whatever you've wanted for the last like four years or so. Which, again, is really unfortunate. So that's kind of where we're at now. I really hope this doesn't hurt any bipartisan efforts down the line. 
But that is what we're looking at. So just remember, there is a chance that that one Democratic senator, Joe Manchin, will not be voting for this and stop the whole aid process. And there is the potential this could hurt bipartisan efforts. Now that the analysis is officially wrapped up, let's get to the reason why I'm sure you're here to listen to the second half of the interview that I've had with Hannah. Just to remind you where we left off, we were basically talking about Hannah thinks that this country is on its way to becoming more democratic. So from there, we will continue the conversation. Just to let you know, there was one point in the audio where I asked her a question and it didn't come through very clearly. So I just re-recorded the question that I asked her and put it in. Um, You'll be able to tell it sounds a little bit different. Um, Just so you're aware, it will sound a little bit different in that respect. But I wanted to make sure that the question was clear so you could hear what she had to say for her answer. Without further ado, here is the second half of the interview with Hannah. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I certainly did in the moment and listening back to it when I was editing. I want to go back to what you were saying about specifically with Georgia and like registering voters, because I think there's a misconception to with that, that they specifically targeted like getting black people to, to register to vote in order to impact that election. But I think it's so important, like you said, that it wasn't just for black people. It was anybody who wanted to register to vote. And the whole point of that was to just make sure that a population that has been marginalized and hasn't had their voice heard at all had the chance to just do what basically white people and other people of this country don't even have to think twice about like being able to vote and i think that that is so powerful and honestly i would i'm hoping that that at some point like her Stacey abrams model while it was specific to georgia like can be adapted and modified for other states just because i think honestly like there uh, people might not realize there are so many people in this country that like voting for them like it, it just it doesn't happen every four years or whenever there's an election like it's it's there's so many barriers that they have to go through just to be able to do that so yeah and i think that there's i've i've seen and i i get it i think that there are a lot of people who get very uncomfortable if their friend or their colleague or somebody that they are close to says they're not going to vote like i think snoop dog even for the first time this year i think he said this is the first Love year of voting because he didn't think he was eligible because of Right, yeah. A criminal criminal record. But I think that there are other people beyond ongoing legal cases or um, having served time in prison that just don't feel empowered to do so. And that, to me, is also voter suppression. I I also, what I think is so important, and and I, I saw it a little bit in a different way this year, but is that if somebody is coming to you for the first time and they've never organized, they've never knocked a door, maybe they're not registered to vote, it's not our job to shame them. It's our job to help them get to where they want to be, but to do a very deep reflection and 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 think about what have I done as, as an individual and what are the systems and institutions that I'm a part of that maybe have perpetuated this person not thinking that they could vote or not thinking that their vote would even go anywhere because it ha- it's people of all ages. It's not just young people. There are people right. who are, there are people who are 97 years old who have never voted before. And that's a problem. And I think there's a lot of people who feel threatened by that too. Like just like they're like, I, I think it's like very easy for somebody who again has had that availability their whole life to vote and haven't had to jump through any obstacles. I mean, like seeing now that other people are getting the chance to do that, like 
there is, I think there is fear. Like, I don't want to call out the Republican Party, but I think there is fear within the Republican Party that now all these people are getting the chance to vote and they see that as something wrong and like stealing elections because all these new voters between the ages of 18 to like a 100 and whatever are now being able to vote. And it's like, no, they should have been able to vote this whole time. Like what was Snoop Dogg? He thought that he couldn't vote at all. Like it's just like misinformation like that. And now trying to fix that so that, I mean, we, this is a nation for us all. Like if you're living in this country and you're a citizen over the age of 18, like you have the right, just like everyone else, in my opinion, to be able to express your views in the form of a vote. So it's, I, again, I think it's really amazing and so cool that I, that happened in Georgia. And I can't really wait to see if that can happen at some point down the line with other states. I wanted to ask you, since this is Black History Month. Black History Month. Black, we love it. Black History Best Month. Of like, the year. <laughs> what is something about Black History Month that you think that people should be aware of that we might not necessarily be considering how we learn things in school and how it's often whitewashed? I have the origins off the top of my head, but it originated from Negro History Week. And it is in February to honor the birthdays of both Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. I encourage everybody listening to this to really make sure that they are up to date on who Frederick Douglass even was and Abraham Lincoln because while he executed the Emancipation Proclamation and um, he did not actually free the slaves in the way that I was taught in school. And so while it is monumental as as a moment of history it, it wasn't sufficient and I think that's actually something that I think we are still reckoning with as a society now that even mm-hmm. even the progresses that society has made both large and small there's been a lot of compromise with white supremacy in the process and to my understanding and I um I'll get you a source on this because it came across my timeline just a little while ago, so it's not something that I can speak on as fluently, but I believe that the United States paid reparations to plantation owners, and we're still, yeah, and the concept of even establishing a committee in Congress to look into the process of what reparations for descendants of slaves, or even Black people in the United States who are not descended from slaves in the American South, but whenever they or their ancestors, relatives came to the United States, they are still subject to the conditions that Mm -hmm. that slavery and Jim Crow have created for anybody who's Black. Um, That committee, (laughs) just the committee to study it is a controversy. Thank you. Thank you for pointing out too that like looking into like figures that we think as well as like we associate with like Black History Month in a positive way. Because again, I think our history for this country is I don't think actually, I know it's extremely whitewashed. (laughs) So I think it's just a matter of like, I've been, I challenged, I'm challenging myself. And I also put this in a past episode, like challenging people listening to just take, take the time, even if you're just starting out with like a couple minutes a day, just like reading and like learning for yourself, just because again, we, we are spoon fed a lot of this information and a lot of it's either not true or it's put in a different lens to, to change what actually happened. I wanted to ask you as well, like, as somebody who is a member of the Black community, what is what would you say would be the most helpful thing for allies to be doing right now to, like, elevate Black voices and to be there for the Black people in their life? 
it really starts at home. I think you need to one anybody who is white needs to make sure that whoever they themselves and this is my personal opinion, whoever they themselves are affiliated with are willing to put their whiteness and their white privilege on the line if it means elevating a black voice because I think it's one thing to say, oh yeah, no, I think that this black woman over here, she deserves equal treatment. But if you're not going to take it one step further to leverage the power that white supremacy affords you to make sure that that person is, you know, put to the front of the line when it's time to get a promotion or her resume is taken a second look in a job, in a job interview, whatever it ends up being. I honestly would, my opinion is that you are part of the problem, but I, I don't speak for everybody. So I think that's what you need to do in sort of the way that you conduct yourself is to make sure that you're exercising the privileges that you're afforded (laughs) because I can't, I mean, well, let me, let me actually backtrack that a little. So like I said, my dad's family is black. My mom's family is not. And so I grew up in Maine, very, very white place. And now that I live in, in a different era and like since I went to college, I think I've come to view my identity in a very different light because I, I think it's become much more clear to me in the past couple of years than I could grasp when I was in high school, when there were very few black people around period that I'm treated very, very differently in the world in, in a lot of spaces that I'm in because I have light skin. I have a different hair texture than other black women who are darker than me sometimes do. And that many people who are in my situation who are biracial are able to blend in into certain spaces where some of their darker skin brothers and sisters aren't. And so these challenges that I'm I'm giving now, I'm also looking inward to make sure that I'm also doing those things because while I do face and I have I have plenty of stories. I I do and have been discriminated against and I can recount tales and tales and tales. I also know that I have a different proximity to whiteness than than dark skin dark or darker skin black people do. And so I try also to not speak out of turn and to not add in my color commentary to a situation that's not mm-hmm. that I I can't say that I've ever experienced or that maybe my light skin and my frankly my white upbringing or white family wouldn't just a situation that I couldn't can't always relate to so (laughs) I say all to say I feel like I have a a little bit of authority in all of this because these are things that I do as I try my hardest to do as well I try not to choose to be comfortable in the way that other people perceive me and to leverage the privilege that I have that I obviously never asked for but that I can't just wish away because I don't yeah. think that it, I, yes while I don't think that the privileges that I have are just there's no other way to undo that injustice than to use them to elevate other people and to work towards a world where those don't even exist Oh my God, I'm giving you snaps right now. If I can snap and not have it be weird in the audio, that's that's what will be in there. But thank you so much for for saying that because that is, that I think, so important. And just recognize that the color of your skin, if, if you're trying to be an ally to a member of the Black community, is going to protect you more. And people 
are actually probably going to listen to you more, unfortunately, than if somebody who is black is saying the same thing. And, and, and even I know if what like, you're saying, yeah. even if what you're saying is, hey, this person has a really great point, let's listen to them, right? Like, I don't even think it, it necessarily, and I don't, no, I don't think it should be uh, regurgitating the point of a black person so that the white person is listened to. Like, I think there are so many ways that everybody can use their words who has systemic barriers in accessing that light as a way to shine the light on somebody there we go yeah that that was what i was trying to say thank you for putting it so, <laughs> no so much more beautifully um but yeah just the thank you for that hannah um but yeah that that again is a great point everybody just remember that 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 is an option for you and even if you're just starting out with like learning how to be an ally like there there is so much that you are able to do while still staying relatively in your comfort zone though i am going to challenge you just to step out of that a little bit because i think in the long run it's just going to help you and everybody basically if you're able to do that and to speak up but yeah i think we are going to be wrapping up this this interview but just have a few more questions for our girl hannah i mean the show is it leans a little bit more liberal because i i do I, i am a democrat but i try to make it so that it's fair to both sides of the aisle like i'm not just picking on one or the other so i have to ask can you name for me one person of the republican party that you respect or like and you can can you give me a little bit more information about why that is i sure can and the first person that comes to mind is condoleezza rice i mean this this is this is this admittedly is actually a very hard question for me because i think if the question were to be you know current leadership or current members of congress i think my answer would be very different But I'm going to go with Condoleezza Rice because I think there are very few Black people in foreign policy, but I am a big believer that almost all foreign policy, I'll say all foreign policy decisions and foreign policy implications affect marginalized communities the most. Whether that's a trade agreement, what is that doing to farmers who are disproportionately Black and Latino? is that military and a lot of members of the military are black and are like my dad from low income communities is that I don't know countries that we're choosing to ally ourselves with who we had not previously allied before and so I like to think that having Condoleezza Rice's voice in the foreign policy seats that she has sat in has been not only a positive because one of us is there (laughs) But because I I would like to believe, I've never been in these rooms, of course, but I would like to believe that she was looking out for us. Now, whether or not that's true, I obviously have no idea. But I do think that it's really important that there is hopefully a generation of young Black people, particularly young Black women, who are looking at Condoleezza Rice, Susan Rice, so many of the diplomats and former State Department officials, other folks in the national security community who are Black and who are Black women and are like, oh, wow, it's not just Dick Cheney's, you know, the Dick Cheney's of the world sitting in a room making these large sweeping foreign policy decisions. I can, I can apply to the State Department or I can pursue a career in foreign policy, whether or not I always agreed with Condoleezza Rice. I surely didn't, but I don't want to discredit that she definitely helped break down some barriers by nature of where she was able to go. Yeah. And um, for those of you who don't know who Condoleezza Rice is, right. she was, <laughs> oh, no, it's explain. okay. No, no. 
well it's funny because i know who she is i actually remember like to sidetrack i did a um what was it like a book report or something oh no like a history report on her in third grade and i thought that she was so cool so i was really funny that you brought that was who you brought up because i'm like oh my god of course like she's a she's a queen but she was uh under the bush administration his um secretary of state and i think it was like for 2005 until all the way to the end of his presidency but hannah did a really great job explaining like what she did and what she what she did for of course like breaking down barriers Okay, well, thank you so much for that, Hannah. Any last words or thoughts you have for us today in the aisle? No, I don't. I just, again, I'm very, very happy for you. I'm uh, super excited to see where this podcast goes. Me too. I honestly, I have no idea where this is going to take me. But um, again, I thank you so much for for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. And as always, you are funny and insightful. (laughs) Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. I hope you enjoyed that last part of my conversation with Hannah. Like I said, she is somebody who I admire greatly and always is so intelligent, has so many great things to say. So I am so happy she agreed to talk with me and I'm so grateful that you had the chance to listen to that and to hear a little bit more from her in terms of her experiences and what she had to say about Black History Month. We are officially now at the end of this mini-sode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Like I said um, earlier on, expect more impeachment stuff. Hopefully just one more week of it so I can give you a nice wrap up of what we saw analyzing that and what we can expect moving forward. Just to wrap things up, a few last things um, to mention. If you know somebody who you think is worth hearing from and who has great political experiences, please feel free to let me know because I, like I said, I have other interviews lined up, but I would be so happy to have somebody who's not in my inner inner circle or my, I should say, my um, professional circle as well that um, I would love to get the chance to talk to. So, of course... DM me um, at In The Aisle Podcast on Instagram and let me know. Additionally, feel free again, share with friends and especially with these interviews, I would really love for as many people to hear what my guests have to say. So other than that, I really hope that you guys have a wonderful rest of your hopefully long weekend <laughs> if, if you are, if you do have tomorrow off or I should say Monday, depending on when you're listening to this. But As always, I have been your host, Christina. It has been an absolute pleasure making this podcast for you all. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Until next time, I'll see you in the aisle.